Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We're excited to have Dr. Jane Wood, President of Bluffton University, as our guest. Well, I always like to start with your personal journey Mm -hmm. for the presidency. And let's talk about who are your mentors that really helped shape who you've become? Mm, Gosh, Um, well, one of my first and most important mentors was a, uh, a faculty member named Dr. Dorothy Hacker. And she taught sociology um, when I was an undergrad, and she um, taught a class called Race, Class, and Gender that um, was just phenomenal and just opened my eyes to so many things. And um, she was just a huge mentor and factor in my life. Um, as an undergrad and then in graduate school, uh, there was a woman named Janet Sherestanian, also a faculty member in English who um, just really was passionate about what she did and took an interest in my areas of research and just really was important and led me in that direction. And then I would say, finally, students, right? Um, After I started teaching full-time, it was really getting to know students and the stories of students and my colleagues, of course, that um, really have have driven me in in many, many ways. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, about relationships and about Bluffton University. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have roughly 800 students. Mm-hmm. Right. So I would imagine, you know, when you compare Bluffton to an institution, maybe a public flagship that has 40,000 plus students, mm-hmm. relationships, knowing the faculty, the students, and the students being able to possibly have lunch with the president and sure. know others on, on campus. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what, what, what are relationships like that, that mean? Yeah, you know, I would on, I might be biased, but I would say these are the kinds of relationships that really help students get ready for life as well as their vocation. And um, you know, one of the things we're hearing from employers nationally is that, you know, students aren't necessarily ready to move into the career workspace. And I would say our students are more ready for that because they have lived and worked with a variety of people in student jobs here. We employ a lot of students. Um, And they have developed the kind of relationships that you are going to want to see in the workplace. Whereas, you know, at big state schools, and there's some good things about big state schools, big state U, one of my colleagues calls them. um, You know, there's some good things about that. There's also a way in which you can blend in and be anonymous. And here you are not anonymous. People know your name. Faculty know if you're not in class. Um, And so you are held to um, being a part of a community in a way that I think is important and meaningful and that I worry sometimes we're losing um, in the greater, the greater world today. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and you talked about, you know, the, the community. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the relationships that you built in the local community? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I imagine the conversations that we have with presidents, you know, the community around the institution, one really relies on the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I have a monthly lunch with our mayor and with our village administrator, which I think is really important. And that was really helpful to have those relationships, for example, during COVID. Um, It was really helpful to have relationships with our local health department during COVID. And and people knew our campus, knew our faculty, staff, and students, knew who we were and what mattered. And I really think our town gown here, um, the village is about 4,000 people. We are better as a university because of the village. And the village is better because of us. 
And because our competition, I, it was one of the questions I know you want to talk about, um, because we have the University of Finley that is up I-75 and Ohio Northern that's down I-75, we tend to be, um, uh, because we have such a really good school system, we tend to be a place where faculty will come and they might work for us and have a spouse who works at one of the other colleges. So we really are um, a college town in more ways than probably lots of small schools. So we have a vegan restaurant, we have a health food store, we have a Chinese restaurant. I mean, we have a whole bunch of things that um, I would say some other institutions might not have. And we're grateful for that. But it's also, you know, a real back and forth. And I think we value each other because of that. So how do you define student success? Mm, yeah, so um, I, I would define it differently probably than some legislators which would say, you know, they have a job that they enter into and make a lot of money. Um, certainly, we want our students to be placed in their field of choice. But what we really want to equip our students for is to have a meaningful life. So um, we have an alum who says something that I just love, which is um, my MBA prepared me for my career, uh, but Bluffton prepared me for life. And if I hadn't had Bluffton, I would never have been able to go on for my MBA. And so what we really want people to um, graduate from Bluffton with is a, is a greater understanding of the world, of themselves, certainly with, the, with job readiness. Um, we graduate almost all of our students who graduate within four years. Um, and so we certainly want them to have that placement, but we want, we want them to have more than that, right? We, we, we don't want them to not know each other, to not know what we stand for, to not know our values, to have a sense of spirituality. We're a faith-based institution. We want our students um, to have something that studies them. Life's going to be about peaks and valleys. And we want them to be equipped for peaks and valleys as well as the world of work. Mm -hmm. How many first-generation students do you have? You know, uh, right around a um, little over 40%. Mm -hmm. And so how, how do you make sure, um, first generation students and, and students in general, mm -hmm. how do you make sure that they persist mm -hmm. through to graduation? You know, what tools and what levers do you utilize to really make sure? And again, I talk about first generation students because oftentimes they don't have, in, in many instances, may not have the guidance to really help, help them see the finish line, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we have, a, we have a lot of different resources for students. Um, we have a learning resource center, so there's a lot of academic help. We have 24-7 um, counseling available to them um, virtually, and we also have um, in-person counselors available to them. Um, we work really hard with our residence hall um, folks to um, say, are you checking in on your on the, on the students in your floor? Are you just checking in with them seeing, you know, how are they doing? Um, do they have a friend group? Do they have a sense of belonging? So there is a real, um, I would say we have a very intense passion for helping our students to feel like they belong. That doesn't mean we always succeed, uh, but that is something we work really hard at for every student, but we even know how important that is for first-generation students. We also have a series um, that is co-curricular called our Life Hacks series. So often, and I'm sure you've heard of this, first-generation students don't know what we call the hidden curriculum, which is, you know, things that other people know. So what is a hidden curriculum? Well, that is 
Like everybody knows when you go to a football game that, you know, you wear your university sweatshirt or whatever it might be. So you get there and you don't have it on and everyone else does and you feel like you don't belong. And so there's a hidden curriculum in academics, there's hidden curriculum in athletics, there's just hidden curriculums for higher ed that if you had parents who went to school uh, to to higher ed, um, you have a better sense of that. And so we try to make that visible, the invisible more visible in our life hacks series. And so when we talk about career readiness, you know, there are jobs uh, today that are not going to exist in five or 10 years and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So how do you make sure that students are career ready? And when I say career ready, not just when they graduate, but 10, 15, 20 years from now. Yep. And so, you know, that's the critical thinking piece. That's part of a liberal arts education. Um, that's, that's being able to say, what is the problem and knowing there aren't easy solutions. Um, you know, when I talk to students and I taught a class last semester, cause I said, you know, I've been here four years. I want to teach. This is what we do. So I taught a class last semester and I said, you know, they're not easy solutions to complex problems or they would have already been solved. So, you know, when you think about solving for poverty, when you think about solving for, Um, institutionalized racism, when you think about um, trying to solve for institutionalized classism, you know, all the things that um, are, you know, we wanted, we want them to go out in the world and make it a better place, all the things that are important, right, they're not easily solvable. And so, so do you want to bring a big lens um, to those things? You want to, you want to understand both the pros and the cons, you want to listen to people, you want to collaborate with people to look for solutions. And so those are all the skill sets that no matter where you live, at what time you live, um, in what era you live, those are all the kinds of skills that, that people are telling me, at least, they want in their employees. So do you worry about the enrollment cliff? Yeah, I love the drama of it, right? Um, you know, we have um, we have put some measures into place, what we call our Bluffton Blueprint, which is our four-year integrated series of courses that are around that's around our mission, which is experientially based, that is helping to let how our students live out our mission, which is also um, a course set of courses they all have in common. So every student takes their freshman course, sophomore, junior, and senior course, and Um, Each one has a really key experience in it that we think is meaningful and that matters. And all of that leads to greater emotional intelligence, um, which is part of our vision. So I think we're going to be okay. Um, Do I wish we had, um, you know, greater population than Ohio? You bet. Um, But um, do I think we're going to be okay? I do. Mm -hmm. So what are the what are the biggest challenges that you're facing on a day to day basis? What's your focus? Um, you know, I think just trying to keep up with things as they're changing so quickly. So, you know, part of um, academic people's jobs is to really sift through information, be reflective, cautious, careful, thoughtful. That is the hallmark of, of being educated and knowledgeable. And yet information comes at us so quickly now to try to discern what information is useful what information do I need to pass along? What information can I discard? And then there's a lot of government regulations. We are a nation that's polarized. And so, you know, we get one set of folks in the White House and they want to go this direction and another and the other. And we just get policies and procedures changed. And then the presidency changes four years in four years and we got to go redo our, our policies and procedures. And so whether it's, you know, federal financial aid or Title IX or, 
um, reporting out to the Department of Education. This is just all constantly changing. Mm-hmm. And so keeping up with that on and making sure we're keeping in compliance is um, something that has come to the forefront in ways that I think, you know, in pre- prior years was not as important. So how do you how do you best manage that? You know, and do you have a say with state officials, local officials, federal government? How does how do you, how do you manage that process? Yeah. So um, fortunately, as a small private independent college, we have some really great associations. So we belong to the um, Association of Independent Colleges and Universities of Ohio, AICUO. And so we have a really great executive director in Todd Jones. So he keeps us really well apprised of what's happening in the Ohio State Legislature. I do reach out to our state legislatures regularly, um, but I also know they have their eye out um, for things that are both good and things that we might want to be concerned about. Um, I also, um, am, we are part of a group called NICU, which is the National Association of Independent Colleges and Universities. And I was just in Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago. I am part of a national committee on accountability. And so we're looking at, you know, what is what are the, the legislature saying at the national level about how colleges and universities are preparing students and how do we influence and respond, both respond, but how do we influence people to make sure they know about the work we're doing and, and what is happening in our worlds. So there's, I think there's good give and take and flow of information. It's just increasingly um, I think the public, um, because of, of debt and all, a lot of public conversations that have gone on around debt forgiveness, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And uh, there's a lot of passion around higher education nationally right now. So did, did you plan on being a president? <laughs> no, I did not plan on being a president. Um, I was an English faculty member for many, many years. Loved that. Um, thought the, the highest I would probably ever go was the department chair. And, um, and I loved being a department chair. I loved the administration pieces of it. I loved having an impact. And then I saw more and more that deans and presidents and vice presidents were more and more being sort of plucked out of the business environment. And I saw sometimes the damage that can happen when people come into higher ed and bring only a business model. Um, you know, we come out of a long tradition of actually medieval monasteries and there are a lot of underpinnings um, in higher ed that go back to those, harken back to those times. And so when you come in and you try to just bring a for-profit model, you wind up with, you know, some of the challenges the University of Phoenix faced. And so um, I said I would step into an interim dean role for a while, and I thought that would be that. And then I stayed for seven years. And anyway, so there's there's kind of the it was, it was sort of by increments these things happen. But I do love the ability to see the wide scope of um, the university and to advocate it in ways that I think are important. Are you, are you still able to teach? You know, um, I did teach last semester. It pushed me pretty darn hard. Uh, so I'm hoping at least once every four years to teach a class. And that way, um, at least once every four years, students, if they want to take class with the president, have an opportunity to do that. I certainly can't do it every semester. And so where do you see Bluffton University in, in five years or 10 years? Yeah. So I really think our emphasis on emotional intelligence is one that's going to continue to grow. As we look at a more diverse, increasingly diverse workforce, people have to collaborate now via technology. People are collaborating across countries. The world is getting flatter and smaller. 
And so I think the role of our kinds of institutions where it's more personalized, it's more direct, we really um, transform our students in um, experiential ways. I think we are poised for growth and I think we're poised for um, really meeting challenges that um, other institutions can't. So I think we're headed in a good direction. Um, it may not be five, it may be 10, but I think you're gonna see this sector turn around. Super, thank you, Brad. Um, I would love to learn a little bit more about the history of Bluffton. You've been around since 1899, so if you could mm -hmm. tell us about the journey, that's a long journey from there, from then yeah. to now. <laughs> so yeah, so this college was started in 1899 and actually the building was the first building that I'm sitting in right now. Oh, nice. It is nice. Uh, it was founded by a group of Mennonites, um, primarily to educate teachers and pastors. Like many schools in small towns, they needed more pastors and they needed more teachers. And so that's that's how we were founded, like many faith-based institutions in the Midwest um, and the Northeast, for that matter. Um, and so it just continued to grow. And um, during First World War, Second World War, it continued to grow and add majors, add business, you know, to, to expand beyond just teachers and preachers. As some people talk about. And so um, we've just continued to evolve, I think, as the times have continued to evolve. But we have stayed very true to our Peace Church tradition. Um, so um, our tradition is that, you know, we, we are nonviolent. And so we would continue to advocate for nonviolence, which, again, is, I would say, really important in the world today. So, how, I mean, you're considered a rule-based institution, right? So you know, how has the community gone through Epson? Did it ever become a big town and then become rural? Or was it always rural? Mm -hmm. What is the dynamic relationship between, um, how has the college evolved as the town has evolved over the years? Yeah. So I would say that, um, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, so part of the history of Northwest Ohio would be that um, there was a lot of farm, right? So there are a lot of a lot of farming students who would come to Bluffton. Um, not everybody could inherit the farm, right? This was back in the days of big families. So you might have one or two family members who would stay on the farm, but the rest of them would say, "Look, you know, I, I need to go get a job and I need to get educated so I can go to the city and work and have a family." And so we had a lot of farm students, students from the farm, for many many years. And so that was, that was, a, we filled a good regional need. And so that was back in the days when, when people didn't travel as much, right? So you think the first part of this institution, like people didn't have cars. So people came to, to college by train. We had a big train depot in, um, in the village. So people would come and bring their suitcase and get off the train and walk up to school, right? So um, it was really, it was um, a farming community. And so you came here for your feed and you came here to bring your grain. And so it, it had, um, there was a lot of farm interaction. Well, then as time has gone on, you know, farmers go to the big grains, the big whatever. And now there's more corporate farms, fewer small family farms. And so I think the role of Bluffton being a place where primarily rural farm kids come is probably not the case anymore. We have a few, but most of our students come here now because they want to play their sport or they want to play in the orchestra, um, but they want a degree in business or still teaching is strong for us. Nutrition and dietetics is strong for us. Business is strong for us. So those are all things that are strong for us. 
Um, and then people got cars, right? And then they build the interstates. And so we have I-75, which is a major thoroughfare in Ohio that runs right through the village. And so even though we're rural, we're right off a major interstate. We're 40 minutes from Toledo. So yes, we're rural. We're not that rural anymore in the way that we would have been seen as rural even 40 years ago. Yeah, you're definitely not remote rural. Right. We're not remote rule. No. I mean, you can be on the interstate in three minutes. Absolutely. So and I call that the best of both worlds, right? Because you don't have the busy, the huge, busy city. You can walk um, to the grocery store. We have a full-size grocery store. You can walk to the village. It's two blocks from campus. Um, so there's a lot of amenities here. It weirdly reminds me of our daughter and son-in-law live in Brooklyn, New York. And they stay on their block a lot. There are these great restaurants in New York, right on their block. They're, they're dry cleaner, their grocery store, everything is on their block. And uh, I said, you know, it's kind of like here. Everything is within about three blocks and we can walk everywhere we want to go. I can walk from my house to the movie theater. I can walk from my house to the grocery store. And so it, in a way, I said, we have everything you have, Mary Beth almost everything you have. We don't have Broadway, but um, mm-hmm. I said, we have everything you guys have and I don't have the high prices nor the smog. Absolutely. And, and that brings us to, you know, we speak of a lot of presidents, right? And especially, you know, b- being a president is infinitely harder now because of the demand and, and the changing environment, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and, and you mentioned presidents are coming from different backgrounds, right? It's it's uh, there's a lot of demand on on being a leader. Uh, I, I want to start with your journey. So it looks like you studied mainly in Missouri, both your undergrad and then graduate. Uh, you studied English, um, <laughs> and and so I, I studied philosophy. So I always oh. like like folks that learn humanities and social sciences. So sure. philosophy is a good one too. We like that. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it, it it bears to mind, like when you go into English, you're not thinking about becoming an administrator, right? So, you know, I know Brad asked you about that journey, but I do want to go a little bit deeper, which is, you know, how did the leadership skills evolve to place you on where you are today in such a challenging time? You know, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, what I would say along those lines is that I grew up in an entrepreneurial household. My dad owned his own business and so did my mother, separate businesses. And so I grew up in a household where we talked regularly about um, how do you make the business work? Because um, we didn't eat, right? We didn't pay the bills if the businesses didn't work. And I think increasingly the ability of leaders in higher education now is has to be about running the nonprofit business. And so um, my education didn't actually prepare me for that, but my education at home, I should say my formal education didn't prepare me for that. But when I started moving into uh, more complex administrative roles, it was more and more that entrepreneurial mindset that I think was important. What, what do you say to presidents who say running a university is like running a business? Mm-hmm. Um, how does that sound to you? Yeah, I would say it's like running a nonprofit business. So it's very clear that when you are in business, my dad had his own accounting firm. His goal was to make money and his goal was to make more money and then to put money back into the business to make more money. 
Um, he wanted to help people and he wanted his people to have um, good experiences, but the goal was to make money. Our goal is not to make money. Our goal is um, to serve our students in a way that then um, enables them to go out into the world and live well and lead, hopefully, if that's what they feel they're called to do, um, and be of service to um, themselves and others. So I would say that without margin, we have no mission. So we have to pay close attention to margin and we have to be sustainable or otherwise we're not here doing our mission. And so that calls us to have to answer some much more complex questions than business, just straight up for-profit businesses have to do. And so we're called to use our philosophical brains and we're called to say, well, how do we continue doing something that we know is important, but that doesn't have a return on investment that we might want? And those are more difficult conversations. And certainly universities have the big element of shared governance, right? So you have to, we see this, you know, resistance, cultural, traditionalist mindset and universities wanting to make rapid changes to, you know, to, to address the needs. And, you know, on the topic of financial, I think Warren Buffett said it best is like money is like oxygen. It's not like you live for oxygen, but you need it to, to, to operate. Now I know he's got, he probably has a lot of oxygen, but, but, but I, I, you know, when, when we think about, and, and the reason for this line of questioning is, you know, you are at the core of liberal arts college, right? Right. So how do you balance you know, where do you see liberal arts with all the changes that that is happening in our society and, and the push for students not to have a lot of debt? Um, mm-hmm. It's a fascinating discussion because, I mean, on paper, on the short term, everyone's like, you should get a degree and get a job immediately. And, but some of the data could go counter to that. So, so where do you stand when you talk about liberal arts and trying to attract families to, to, to liberal arts uh, majors? Yeah. Um, I think there's a core set, uh, there's a core set of skills, um, whether it's philosophical, ethical, historical, that we pretty much agree on in higher ed that are important. And I think the general public would pretty much agree on these things are important. Um, music is very important. We know that, um, understanding the history of music is very important, um, because at some point in your life, you're going to have a boss or a child or a parent or a family member who has passion around these things. And so you want to have enough of an understanding of music, of art, of history, of philosophy. You want to have enough of an understanding that when you go out to learn about this more, you have some sort of base knowledge with which to relate to people, right? And so people will say, well, Jane, it's all on Google now. Well, I understand that, right? I don't memorize dates and facts anymore. And I think um, I think that we are moving away from that in terms of testing. But I do think to be able to say, I understand what the Renaissance meant in the world matters. And I don't know that we have an educated population to do that. So we would say, I think historically, that democracy has depended, and I can't remember who said this, maybe you will remember, democracy depends on an educated citizenry. I think it's John Dewey. And more and more, more and more, we are seeing people who believe anything they read on the internet. 
Now, this isn't new. I mean, it used to be anything that was written in a book, people believe, oh, it was published. We believe it. Yeah, well. And so, um, you know, we're here to educate people. And education doesn't mean just, oh, I can pull up facts. Anybody can pull up facts on their computer. Anybody can go to the library and pull up facts. But what is the interpretation of those facts? And what do you do with that? And that is what colleges have always been able to offer. And what is still going to be needed is not the facts themselves, but what do they mean and why are they important? Right. When we went through the pandemic, people were looking to the historians. What happened in 1918 to 19 when we had the Spanish flu? Like, how did we cope with it? What did we do? What ha- and so all of a sudden it became vitally important. If we don't understand the Cold War and how it operated, then how are we managing the Ukraine? I would argue, and I think many historians would argue, that if we'd had a better understanding of the history of um, the Middle East, we might have been able to avoid a lot of past conflicts. So I think it's vitally important that we have an understanding of what brought us here, um, the differences between Western and Eastern civilization, that we have an educated citizenry as we move into educated legislators, (laughs) educated leaders, um, and without that, I worry. I worry a lot. And, and this issue of neoliberalist, you know, point of view of education and the John Dewey, you know, you know, let's let's educate the masses that helps our democracy. It is at the heart of the conflict, maybe not in those technical terms in, in, in mm-hmm. media, but I think it lives with every parent because, you know, if I'm a parent and I'm coming to you and I'm saying, Listen, I'm I'm hearing all this stuff about artificial intelligence and computer science and healthcare, and my kid really wants to study. In my case, wants to do philosophy or draw, you know, music or what have you. What do you say to that parent? Uh, yeah. You know, because they're, they're hearing all all of this, and there's not a single message out there as far as the value of liberal arts college. I would say the battle is being lost right now with all the confusion that's out there. But how do you? have that conversation with parents and, 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 and people like that? Yeah. Um, well, I'm out talking to industry leaders all of the time. And mm-hmm. so um, I had a, a conversation a couple of years ago with the vice president um, of Verizon. And he was over, I don't even know how many employees. And he said, Jane, I will hire your philosophy majors. I will hire religion majors. I believe in critical liberal arts education, but they have to come in able to communicate with people deal with conflict, and they have to be able to learn technology. I'll teach them, but they have to be open to learning. And if you can give me those things, I will hire every one of your graduates. And we do not have a problem with our graduates being hired. We do not have a problem with our graduates being hired in history and philosophy. We don't have a, you know, we don't have very many, um, but um, we, we don't have a problem with those, those people being hired. And so I say to parents, I'm not worried about your son or daughter getting hired. Um, I am worried about your students being happy in their work and being fulfilled in their work. Mm -hmm. And so providing them with, with the idea that life isn't just work, right? We have kind of that myth in the United States, right? Oh, you got a good job all is well. Well, the average person is going to change jobs 15 times now in their lifetime, 15. So approximately depending on the study you read. So, um, and not only their jobs, they're going to change their whole, like it used to be you would, you would be in your lane, right? You'd say, okay, like I'm in education. I've been in education my whole life. Now I've been in faculty side. I've been in administrative side, but I've been in education my whole life. 
Very few people are going to do that. They're going to jump lanes. They may be in education, then they move into social work, then they move into police force. I mean, it like people are jumping lanes now. And so you're like, how, what are the skills your son or daughter or whatever is going to need to, to what are the skills they're going to need to jump lanes or to be in multiple lanes at the same time? So they work from home part-time or three-quarter time. So they have benefits and they are a medical transcriber. But then what they really want to do is sustainable farming. So they do that three months out of the year. Like, how is your child going to craft a life? Those are the conversations I have. So, you know, a lot of educators, uh, you know, especially presidents of small nonprofit universities are saying, listen, everyone expects us to do more. We're doing more in the community. It, I mean, I've talked to presidents who've had to update their downtown to, to attract students. Mm-hmm. They've had to spend money on faculty residentials. They've had to, sure. they're saying, we have more and more on our plate, in, including stuff uh, such as mental health, but because now it's, it's being recognized and you know, people think as soon as a student comes to a university, it's all of a sudden the university's job to fix uh, everything. And so um, are you also dealing with some of that? And, and what is your point of view as far as the additional responsibility that you have to bear? Yeah, um, you know, I think every, t- every, every set of presidential circumstances, every era is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, that's the job of the leader is to respond in ways that move the institution forward. I certainly would not have wanted to have been a president during World War II when my students were having to go to war and not coming back. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. So are there struggles today? Sure. Um, are there greater or less than at other times in history? Perhaps. But that is the job of leaders is to step up and um and, and do what needs to be done. So whether it's mental health or it's helping to rebuild a downtown, if it serves our students and serves our institution, then that should be what we do. Well, President Wood, thank you so much. It's been a oh, pleasure. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. For more information on the series, please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. Thank you.